Our scripture reading today is Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30. Um, Carol Hoyag um, is going to be reading and if, in honor of God's word. Please stand. Listen as I read. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. So good to be with you guys. Uh, I, uh, if I was a SNL host, I would be at Steve Martin levels. Yeah, I've been here a lot. Uh, as, a, as a guest, I'm going to put this over here somewhere. Um, fun fact, Steve Martin wasn't on, wasn't on uh, you know, the cast of SNL. He, was just, uh, he hosted like 11 times or something, so I don't think I'm quite there yet. But uh, yeah, I uh, connected with Matt years ago when I was uh, pastoring in Big Rapids, uh, doing a church revitalization, and um, Pastor Matt and Lou and Ben, um, a, lot of, a lot of people here were such a huge gift and support, and so it's great to be back with you. <clears throat> um, well, this is a little bit embarrassing, but... I always tend to get a little bit existential around uh, the new year. Uh, I, I'm, not, I'm not like the happy, clappy, end of the new year kind of guy. I, I, my birthday is on the 30th, and so I think it's because, you know, I click over a year of my life, and the calendar clicks over into a new year. I get all, like, you know, existential and metaphysical and stuff, and um, I've been thinking a lot about funerals. Uh, so, yes, welcome to church. Let's talk about death uh, a little bit. Um, but I, I want to tell you a story of of two, two funerals. Uh, on my birthday, about 10 years ago, my grandmother died after a year-long battle with cancer. She died in my parents' living room, uh, you know, on one of those hospital beds that they can bring in for things like this. And she died as uh, my sister, her granddaughter, was reading to her uh, Ephesians chapter 1. Uh, she'd been non-responsive for a while, so we were all just kind of waiting. And so my sister was just sitting there with her and grabbed a Bible and like, it still just melts my heart for her to have gone to see Jesus with her granddaughter reading, Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, it's just beautiful. And she wasn't perfect, uh, of course, uh, but she was, I would say, a saint in a very real sense of the word. She had dealt with a lot of suffering throughout her life. Uh, her husband uh, cheated on her and abandoned her and her three kids, so she dealt with the struggle of being a single mom, a divorced woman, which is hard any time uh, in human history, but maybe had more shame then than it does today. Uh, yet she did what she could. That was like her, that was like her tagline. She, she wanted to do what she could. Uh, in, the, in the words of the great Lou Damiani, she allowed her suffering to make her better, not bitter. As a kid, I'd seen her faithful involvement in church, serving in all kinds of different capacities, mentoring programs, supporting missionaries, and I can still picture vividly her little like Bible reading table that she had set up in the kitchen where just like her big, huge study Bible uh, with her pink Bible cover, because church ladies love pink, I guess, back then, uh, was just open all the time. It was just like, it was just like her, little, her little space. And uh, so much of what I think, as I like process my story, so much of what's good in my story, I think, is part of her spiritual legacy. Uh, and she was fun. Uh, some of the sweetest memories uh, of, of my childhood were slumber parties at, at Grandma Ray's house. And listen, the, the funeral for this four foot eleven, small town single mother was an off the chart celebration of God's work in and through someone. 
There was this massive church auditorium that was packed out. Hymns were belted out by the hundreds of people who came out to celebrate her life. And I stood, you know, they have the family members come up front, you know, afterwards. And I stood in line for what seemed like an hour as person after person, countless strangers shook my hand and hugged me because of how my grandmother had shown them the the love of God. Contrast that with the funeral of my grandfather, the guy, you know, who cheated on my grandma and left my, my mom and her siblings. And he remarried, kind of wandered around out west for a while, uh, for the rest of his life, really. And uh, it was an honor. He asked that I do his funeral. So when he passed away, I drove down to Ohio and I met my mom and her siblings and my step-grandma in the funeral home to talk about the funeral service. And, you know, my grandpa, uh, troubled man, uh, deeply hurt his kids, you know, even before he had abandoned them. He was critical and mean. And, um, and so there I was sitting in, you know, those floral print funeral home couches with my mom and aunt and uncle or, and my step-grandma. And we were trying to talk about, like, All right, so what's going to happen in this funeral service? And uh, this is for free if you ever have to preach a funeral. The, the three H's that I use is honesty, honor, and hope. And so I started with honor. What, what good memories do you have of Grandpa. Guys, the silence that followed that question will haunt me the rest of my life. To have your children and wife sit silently as they rack their brains for something positive to say was so devastatingly sad to me. So I tried to ask more specific questions. What did you learn from him? What was he really good at? When did you feel most loved by him? It was a tough conversation. All we could come up with was the fact that he stayed faithful to his second wife for 30-some years and at one point had built up a dairy herd from one cow named Bessie. It was a hard funeral to preach. You know, no one wanted to be there. Very few, like I think only one or two other people outside of, you know, family, immediate family came. And afterwards we went and ate pizza with like a palpable sense of relief. And so the question for us is what kind of funeral do you want to have? As we enter the new year, considering new habits, goals, you know, I invite you to consider the, the new year, the new you, as Matt mentioned, uh, through the question, what kind of person are you becoming? What will they say about you at your funeral? Today we're going to talk about spiritual formation, and these questions, I think, help, help us get to the heart of what spiritual formation is all about. The plan for this morning uh, is to do th- three things. We're going to define spiritual formation. We're going to hear an invitation from Jesus to spiritual formation and the, the secret of the easy yoke. And then uh, do an overview of a, of a theory of transformation, a clear plan on how to take on Jesus' yoke and uh, experience transformation. So it's a little bit different of a type of teaching. Just caveat, like you know, normally I'm given a text and we just work through the text or whatever. But today uh, it's kind of more of a teaching that flows from Uh, just a ton of scripture and seeks to kind of land the plane really practically, not on just the what of scripture that teaches, but a how. And my hope is that it's just a practical sermon as you enter into 2022 that can kind of give you some rails to run on in becoming more like Jesus. So let's unpack our terms. First, uh, spiritual formation in the general sense, like a broad definition of spiritual formation. The process by which the human spirit is given a definite form or character. This is, a, this is from Dallas Willard, Willard's quote. 
And I bring this up because I think it's very important to note that spiritual formation is not like an option. It's not like something you could sign up for at, the, at church. It's not only something that happens in church or with Christian, Christians or whatever. We can't not be formed. All of us right now are having our spirits take, you know, given a definite form and character. Like we, just like my grandpa who hated the church and he, he had, his character had been given a definite form. C.S. Lewis says it like this. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than it was before. And taking your life as a whole with all your innumerable choices all your life long, you are slowly turning the central thing into a heavenly creature or a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God, with other creatures, with itself, or else into one that is in a state of war, in hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to one state or the other. To say it another way, our choices become habits, habits become character, and character becomes your destiny. So Christian spiritual formation, then, is a specific type. And a working definition, this is from Robert Mulholland, uh, is the process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. The process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others. There's just like a bazillion places we could look in Scripture to, to unpack the, this, but... It, in particular, I would just like point out like this is this is like summarizing almost like all of like the second half of Paul's epistles. You know, he like starts with all the rich gospel doctrine, and then the whole second half is like how we become more loving, more like Jesus, walk in step with the Spirit. There's just like so many uh, scriptural parallels that we could do. But to land the plane, we can't read all of those, or we can't read the second half of every epistle, unfortunately. Let me just read you two verses from Paul in Second Corinthians two, verse thirteen, or. 2 Corinthians 2, chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Now this, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. So this passage captures that the transformation, like a change is happening. Like that word in Greek like, brings to mind the image of like a, butter, a caterpillar turning into a butterfly in a cocoon. That's happening to us. It's a, it's a process from one degree to the next, and it flows, this is super important, from freedom, from the spirit of the Lord that is freedom. And I think we need to do a little work on the word freedom because in our day and age, you know, freedom often means the, the ability to, like, not hold it, in, hold it back anymore. You know, I'm a dad. So all my, <laughs> this is like Elsa, you know, making her ice castle, letting it go. You know, like that, that's freedom where we don't have to, like, hold, hold things back. We do whatever feels right to us. And we don't have to do anything that we don't want to do. This is uh, a, kind of the, the general gist of freedom in our day and age. But in Scripture, freedom means something very different. It means a lot of different things, but I think you could, you could summarize it as the ability to choose the good. When Scripture uses the language of slavery and freedom, it's often talking about, you know, 
being a slave to sin, where before God saves us and gives us a new heart, we can't do anything else other than choose sin or be hostile to God. We're dead in our trespasses, slave to sin, darkened in our understanding. Like scripture is very clear on what our status is before God reaches into our story. And one of the beautiful gifts of the gospel, the work of God in our lives, is this new heart that now can love God and desire God and is able to keep his commandments. Paul says in, in Romans 7, our inner, in our inner being, we now desire God. We have categories for something else other than just our sinful desires. This is important theological context for this uh, discussion of the spiritual formation. <clears throat> One, it is happening to us no matter what. We're all becoming a kind of person. And for Christian spiritual formation, We're describing the process of a person who has been saved by grace, through faith, justified, and regenerated, given this new heart that can now desire and choose God, filled with the Holy Spirit, and enables us to choose to behold the glory of the Lord. Now, our definition has four parts. I just want to do a brief word on each of those four parts of the definition of spiritual formation. First, it's the process. This This means that our time horizon, when we're talking about spiritual formation, is decades. It's like the rest of our life. You know, what what do you want to what do you want to be like in fifteen years, twenty years, forty years? This is good news and might be hard news. Like one, you know, we like instant gratification, of course, so we want like an app that's going to do it by March or whatever. Uh, But so you know, we need to adjust our expectations. This is a, a, a lifelong. Thing, uh, but also there's a lot of grace in that. There's a lot of mercy in that. Like our standing before God is already that we're beloved children. That's what we already are. And just like when my you know children are born, I'm not frustrated. They can't like drive a stick straight. You know when they're six months old or whatever. Like they, they you, you, there's this process that's covered in delight, covered in the grace of being children of God because of what Jesus has done. So it t- it's a process. It's a process of being formed. This is a passive verb, very intentionally chosen. It's something that happens to us. The action is ultimately being done not by us. We have a role to play. We'll talk about that. But ultimately, this is something that only God can do. Third, into the image of Christ. So it's not just a general, like, how to be a nicer person, just how to be more, you know, Ned Flanders like, or it's not a generic love and kindness as defined by the culture, you know, where culture kind of tweaks the definition of love from generation to generation. But it's love and kindness and courage and service to other people as seen in the person of Jesus Christ. It's very specific. It's unbelievably profound to me that God would move into our neighborhood in the flesh and dwell among us and show us how the human life works. And lastly, it's for the sake of others. To talk us back from the cliff of like making this just this sort of like navel-gazing self-improvement process. The point of spiritual formation is uh, for, for the sake of others, to serve others. And it logically makes sense. If we're becoming more like Jesus, who came to serve as one who serves to give his life away for others, then naturally as we become more and more like him, we, we get to the place where we, more, we can more and more joyfully give ourselves away for the sake of others. The choice then before all of us is whether or not we will use our freedom and the new life in the spirit the new, that we have by grace through faith, the God-given sense of agency. God, like, that's, like the fact that you can choose something, like that's from God on purpose. 
God-given ability to act and set up our lives so that our character is formed into what we want. So with that definition, let's look at an invitation from Jesus, an invitation to spiritual formation from Jesus in Matthew 11. That was read earlier. Let me just read it again. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. As we talk about spiritual formation, my hope is that this, this invitation to come to Jesus and yoke ourselves to him is like the framework, the key way that we think about it. We're talking about rest for our souls, resting our souls in the God who made them and is the only one who can satisfy them. But two things we've got to consider. One, is that the experience, our experience of following Jesus, of being a church person, you know, like our church people generally marked by being people of rest and peace, non-anxious presence. And the other reason I, I want this to frame our understanding of spiritual formation is, is because one of the things that breaks my heart in pastoral ministry, when you start talking about spiritual formation or a vision of what your life could be like in 20 or 30 years or what your funeral could be like, is some of us might hear it as like this crushing burden where we look at like where we're at right now and we're like, you know, it just, it feels overwhelming. I had a friend say to me once, I'm just trying not to lose my job. I can't like talk about all this spiritual formation stuff, which I get. Like it can be, it feel like a lot to just keep our nose above water. But please hear me. I, I get so excited about this stuff because it's through participation in the process of being formed, yoking ourselves to Jesus, that we get rest, we get joy. I mean, that's what I want. That's like the hunt of my whole life, life that is truly life. And I'm a pastor. I've given my career to this because I want other people to experience this rest in Jesus. Jesus says his way of life is light and easy. He says it's restful. Eugene Peterson paraphrases this passage like this. Are you tired, out, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. I just love this because it, it gets at, at the kind of like implicit tension, right? He's talking about being burnt out on religion, but then he's like, hey, come rest and also walk and work. Like, I just like love the both and that he draws out here. Let's do a little uh, unpacking of this. Uh, a yoke is a farming tool that would have been used to hook two oxen together. I think I have a picture of it. Oh, they're already up there. Uh, to pull a plow. It's a, it's a working implement. But again, it's that tension. Like, why would Jesus give a working implement to people who are burnt out and weary and heavy laden? Like, why would he put something on their shoulders? It's something that would be used for, like, why wouldn't he say, you know, like, take my pillow and get a nap or go hang up my hammock and get some rest or whatever? He says, take my yoke, take my working implement upon you and learn from me, and it will result in rest for your souls. Well, I think Jesus is getting at the fact that we already have a yoke. Like, there's no yokeless state of humanity. We always have a yoke on our shoulders. The question is, like, what kind is it? And the common practice back then was to take a, a younger, smaller ox 
and hook him up to an older, stronger ox. And then the young ox would, you know, be trained in ox stuff, like, you know, pulling a, pulling a plow, working a field. That's the image Jesus is getting at here. This is how it can be easy and light because we're not, like, getting the yoke by ourselves to do all the work by ourselves, but we're yoked to Jesus. Be with me. Learn from me. Do it my way. I'm strong. I'll do most of the work, but work with me to grow. This is, this is like parenthood, right? Like, it's so much easier to do everything by yourself and not let your kids help. But then, you know, they'll be 30 and still living at home. Like, you have to be patient and gracious, be with them, let them help, let them make a mess. In the, in the cultural context of Jesus' words here uh, would, would point us to the fact that you already have a yoke. The yoke was a common expression in his day. Like, Jesus isn't a hot new take from Jesus. He's using the language of the day because the yoke meant <clears throat> the teaching and way of life of a rabbi, teacher, philosopher. So Jesus wasn't the only yoke out there. There Other rabbis, other Pharisees would have had a yoke, a set of teaching and practices that people could take up. And Jesus is saying, like, take those off and put mine on. And so here it is. This is the, the secret of the easy yoke, friends. You cannot have the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus. This was so freeing to me uh, when I considered this years ago. If you want the character of Jesus, you want to be the kind of person of love, joy, courage, boldness, contentment, power that Jesus has, we must yoke ourselves to his teaching and way of life and learn from him to become like him. So the best example of this uh, is uh, with Tom Brady. I I love Tom Brady's sermon analogies. Two of my top five sermon analogies come from Tom Brady. Uh, There's a side-by-side picture there. Um, He's given preachers everywhere some really good work. But imagine he couldn't play today. Like they're playing playing Panthers, Panthers, I think, later. Uh, And so the coach calls, you know, texts me and is like, hey, after you're done preaching, head to the airport, you know, private jet, I'll fly you. And I need you to, I need you to play quarterback for Tom. And so I go, as someone who hasn't played organized football since third grade, I crawl out of my cuddly dad life, you know, my sweatpants, dorky glasses, and watching Frozen, and maybe working out a couple of times a week, if that, and I put on Brady's pads and jersey, and I trot out onto the field to take a snap. What's going to happen? I try really hard to be like Tom Brady. What's going to happen? I'm probably going to (laughs) die. It would be a disaster. I can't have the life of Tom Brady without the lifestyle of Tom Brady. And this tracks so well with Tom Brady. If you know anything about him, the dude trains and practices and studies football like a maniac. His entire life orients around winning football games. He's got a, a per, I actually looked this up. He's got a personal chef that makes all these, you know, super specific healthy meals. He doesn't drink coffee, alcohol, pop. He doesn't eat sugar or bread or nightshades. Apparently tomatoes don't help you win Super Bowls. Uh, I don't know. Uh, he's in bed every night at 9 o'clock, and, you know, he's got a whole team of exercise scientists crafting his workouts for, you know, mobility and strength and range of motion, and he spends hours studying film, plays, watching his throwing form, you know, all this stuff. I can't be like Tom Brady just trying to be like Tom Brady in the big game, in, in that moment, but I think a lot of us might try to follow Jesus that way. Dallas Willard summarizes it like this. Our mistake is that following Jesus consists in loving our enemies, going the second mile, turning the other cheek, suffering patiently and hopefully. That's next level. While living the rest of our lives just as everyone around us does. It's a strategy bound to fail and to make the way of Christ 
difficult and left untried. In truth, it is not the way of Christ any more than striving to act in a certain manner in the heat of a game is the way of a champion athlete. We can't have the life of Jesus without the lifestyle of Jesus. There's a lot of freedom in this. This isn't meant to be a guilt trip. It's like, oh, I've been trying to you know, be like Tom Brady in the game without practicing. Like, there's an other way to live. There's a different system. Like The system of my life is producing these results. I need a different system to get different results. And so the question is, will we use the freedom we have in the gospel, the freedom from slavery to sin, the Holy Spirit within us, to choose to follow Jesus and setting up our lives to be like Jesus with even half as much intentionality as Tom Brady sets up his life to win football games. Now, there's a key concept when we talk about choosing things or doing things. I think we always got to keep on the table, which is this. Grace is opposed to earning, not to effort. Grace is opposed to earning God's favor or right standing. There's nothing we can do to earn God's favor, merit God's love. But if we're just to take the whole breadth of Scripture seriously, grace, grace can't be opposed to taking up our cross, following Jesus. It's not like we're legalists as soon as we start exerting effort and energy to pursue the things we want. There's this like funny paradigm where you, know, you have pastors that are like all grace all the time, but then they like CrossFit six, out, you know, six days a week or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that, but it's just like we can do a lot of effort there, but it's just like it's all grace, just like float. You know, and it's all great. Like why can't we combine some of those, those efforts and physical things into spiritual things? Like was the, was the guy who sold everything to buy the field with the treasure and it being a legalist? No, he was going after what he wanted. And if I could just testify for a hot second... I'm a huge grace guy. I was trained in a seminary that was all grace all the time. The church I, I worked at during seminary was all grace all the time. I actually wrote a book on Tulip 2.0. They were trying to like repackage Tulip for you know, the doctrines of grace for uh, the next generation or whatever. It was all grace all the time. And listen, that same church required me to start doing a day of silence and solitude every month. And nothing has made grace more sweet to me than actually like pressing in actually exerting effort to become like Jesus. No one swaggers out of a day of silence and solitude. Like, at best, your soul is, like, calmed and quieted like a child within you. And most of the time, you kind of, like, limp out of it just, like, begging God to, like, get, hold you. <laughs> hold you. Because when, when, when you're still before God, all the crazy and guilt and shame that we keep, you know, repressed and packaged with busyness and distraction and whatever, it, it bubbles up. And what, what are we left with? Just the, the cross of Jesus that, is our, our, that merits our standing before God and the ferocious, loving gaze of God towards us in that place as we're so aware of all this stuff in us. Grace becomes more real. In that, like, I mean, in, in lots of different practices. That's an example from silence and solitude. When we engage with God in a holistic, well-formed way, we experience grace so much more deeply. Now, the cry of my heart this morning is that this would be good news. Like, if you're here today just, like, weary, like, you're tired of besetting sin, just so, feeling so stuck in your spiritual life, the invitation of the easy yoke, the secret of the easy yoke is that you don't have to stay there. You're not alone. You don't have to just, like, try. You don't have to just, like, wait for the sanctification lightning bolt to zap you. God has given us the ability to act, exert effort, and what we'll see happen is that when we 
we show up, the Holy Spirit blesses our little efforts. Like the, you know, the kid with the fish and the loaves feeding thousands of people. We just like show up, like this is what I got. And I just like love that. Like the kid being like, this is the food I have. You know, like he's not thinking practically. He's like, this is all I got. And the Holy Spirit multiplies that, empowers that, meets us in that tender place. Which leaves us with the question, how? How, how do we do this? How do we take on Jesus' easy yoke? How do we engage in this process of being formed into the image of Christ for the sake of others? I don't think many of us would argue with the fact that the Bible teaches that we are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. Like, that's, I don't feel like that's super debatable. But how many of us would say we have a clear understanding on ways in which that can happen? If there's the what, being conformed into the image of Christ, then there's the how. Like, how does that work? What, what, what is our role? Like, what, what does that look like Monday Monday through Friday. Well, I have a, a theory of transformation for you to consider uh, that is meant to map out the components of our, how our spirits are formed. And we could, we could spend an entire sermon series unpacking all of this from Scripture. So it'll be a very brief overview, hopefully just to kind of get you thinking about your own life. Uh, before we dive into it, uh, remember, our time horizon is decades. So if it feels like a lot, like, oh, that's going to take a long time. Yeah, that's right. It's going to take a long time. Uh, this theory is mostly developed uh, by Bridgetown Church, uh, tweaked by my friends and I down at Redemption City, is this. God makes us like Jesus through the Holy Spirit empowering teaching, practices, and community in the context of the work, joy, and suffering of our lives. I know it's a mouthful. Let me read it again. God makes us like Jesus through the Holy Spirit empowering teaching, practices, and community in the context of the work, joy, and suffering of our lives. So here, I think I have a graphic of, graphic of it. Yeah, there it is, all in like a map. First, I want to point out that this is like a Trinitarian thing. God has decreed and predestined us to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus, who's accomplished the salvation that God uh, decreed and brought about. And then he's also shown us how to live as a fullest version of humanity on the earth. And then we have the spirit as a seal, as a helper, as a teacher, as a power source. Like at some point, we got to deal with the reality that in Jesus' mind, it was better for him to leave and send the spirit than for him to stay with us in the flesh. We got to deal with the fact that Jesus said, you will receive power from on high when the spirit fills you up. Now, looking at the map here, um, it's important to note that the parts we can only really like control or directly engage in are the teaching practices in community, the stuff outside of the triangle, in between the circle. Those are the things we can choose to do to make ourselves available to the Spirit's work and lives. The, the, the things outside the circle, those are con- the context, the circumstances of, of our lives, which, if we're honest, you know, we have way less control than, than we probably normally think we do. But you can think of it like a car, car as an analogy. The teaching practices in community are like the pedals, of, uh, the pedals in the steering wheel, the part of the car that we directly engage with that enable us to have access to the power of the engine and go somewhere. The Holy Spirit is the engine. We aren't going anywhere, no matter how good our, our pedals and steering wheel is if we don't have an engine, no matter how good our teaching practices and community is if we don't have, uh, if we don't have the Holy Spirit, we're not going anywhere to be like Jesus. And the big circles are like the conditions of the road. I have a bad habit of like taking analogies probably too far, but hopefully you can track with this. Like, is it wet? Is it unpaved? Is it hilly? Is it super snowy with, you know, an inch of ice or whatever? 
Um, and we can't really control the weather, right? Or we can't really control the roads that much. But we can, you know, choose not to drive if it's blizzarding. Shout out to live streamers. If they're, are we live streaming? Yeah. You know, like maybe you looked at the weather and you're like, not namaste. You know, I'm going to stay at home. Uh, but sometimes you have to, uh, you, you got to drive in a blizzard. And it, but the, the things that we do to engage, the steering wheel and the pedals, they're the same. And we got to interact accordingly. And I also want to point out that on one level, this is just like fabric of the universe, how, how humans change, because it incorporates like all of our being, like our, our mind and our imagination and our emotions with the teaching and then our bodies with practices and then our relationships with community. Like if you wanted to learn Arabic, like take the Holy Spirit out, you wanted to learn Arabic, you would need teaching, vocab, grammar. You'd got to practice saying the words, conjugating verbs in your head. And then you'd have to, you know, other people, right? You need other Arabic speakers, teachers, et cetera. Same for learning the cello. You know, you'd, you'd need to learn, you need to practice, you need a teacher and other cellists. Uh, the same, probably belaboring this, but, you know, the same for Alcoholics Anonymous. This is, like, woven into their, their whole philosophy. They have teaching. They got it. It's called the big book. I highly recommend it. It's super fascinating if you haven't read it. And then there's 12 steps, 12 practices that they invite everybody to do. And then, you know, probably the, the biggest strength of AA is the community. Like these, these people that say, you know, say your name every, you know, every time you gather. Like, hi, Josh, you know, and uh, you're given a sponsor. And what I found in my time in ministry is that typically a church or a church network will be all about one or two of these elements of transformation, and, and, and neglect others. My, you know, maybe intentionally. I mean, there are people that just like openly reject the Holy Spirit. That's another sermon. Uh, but most of the time it's unintentional. We're just like excited about one part of this and we just talk about that and functionally like minimize or don't address other things. Uh, when that happens, you know, it's like just only doing your right bicep, right? You get like swole over here and you get this little stick over here. Um, so, you know, you have churches that, that minimize theology and teaching and are just all about, you know, organic community and relationships. I saw a website whose mission statement was building theologies together. It was like, oh, we're just going to get together and make up crap about God. Sorry, I just, I just said Seward. It, it made me sad. Excuse me. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Uh, but don't do that, all right? Don't just like randomly build up theologies, no matter how good your relationships are. Uh, you know, because like, if you're loving people without truth, how, how's that going to go? If you, you just love and accept everyone and never, never speak truth, we just like end up like applauding people as they you know, drive off a cliff. But then maybe to get a little closer to home, there's lots of churches and denominations who focus on just teaching and the Bible and truth and might you know, functionally neglect practices or the things that form our lives throughout the rest of the week. You know, if we just know right, we'll do right. The answer to every problem is a, a book. But the, and that's part of it. It's on the map. Like Books are great. But, you know, but the Bible itself says what? Knowledge puffs up. But love, love builds up. Some of the most unpleasant, like, derogatory people I've met, like, have most of the New Testament memorized and can, like, you know, with a, very precisely suss out theology. Or Jesus, in the words of Jesus, he, he says, you search the scriptures in vain, thinking that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that bear witness about me. Like, this is horrifying. There's a way to come to the Bible and miss Jesus. But all these components work together. You need them all. 
And having them like on a map, having them just like out there helps you be aware of like what you're naturally drawn to. Like maybe you're big into relationships, but not like teaching and reading. You're just not a reader or whatever. And so like, do you need teaching and truth? Like, yes. Maybe not as much as like a more bookish person. Maybe you need to read a book with other people in relationships or something like that. Uh, Or maybe vice versa. Like you love to read. You're happiest like surrounded by books alone or whatever. Do you need relationships? Do you need other people speaking truth? Of course. And they're all interconnected uh, in the sense that teaching and truth, that how, does, how does that come to us? It comes to us in practice, like reading the Bible or right now. You know, you're getting some teaching now in a, in a Sunday, Sunday gathering and community is a practice, like right now. You know, the, like the Sunday morning gathering is so important because it's like almost so many of in one. You got singing, gathering together, you got teaching. It's very formative to gather with others, other Christians on Sunday morning in a, in a worship gathering. The practices or spiritual disciplines are the, the habits or disciplines we see in the life of Jesus that are kind of like, if you look at kind of like the high-level commands, like don't be anxious or don't neglect gathering together. You know, you have these, these things that are like not specific. They don't say like, hey, at 10 o'clock, you know, on McRae Hill Road, you know, meet here or whatever. But it's like, you know, they, they, they're up here and the practices help us get that down to concrete things like 10 o'clock here this morning. And it's important to note that practices, they flow out of the objective reality of who God is. Like practices are always connected to truth, to doctrine. So for example, spirit, uh, Sabbath is a, is, a, is a practice. One I think could be incredibly powerful for a lot of us and one of the ways we could most be a, like a prophetic witness to the world if we practice Sabbath. Jesus, as far as we know, practiced Sabbath every day that he lived on the earth. Uh, it's a time, 24 hours, to stop, rest, Delight and worship, get nothing done. Like, get, imagine a day where you just got nothing accomplished. You only did elective, optional things. Like, try to be a kid in the sandbox. Now, the teaching, the truth that God is sovereign, that He holds everything. We, oh man, we sang some good songs about that. Like, where were we when the stars sang out? Like, God is sovereign, He holds everything in His hands. We need to know that, unpack it from Scripture, we need to sing it like we did this morning. But I don't think we can say we really believe in the sovereignty of God until it impacts how we live. And so Sabbath, 24 hours to stop and be a creature, to be the people of his pasture and let God be God and enjoy resting is one of the ways that we practice the sovereignty of God. Are you tracking with me? Like Sabbath isn't just for Sabbath's sake. It's for like, I want, I want the truth of God's sovereignty to get like deep into my bones, like into my body where I, I rest well every week because I know that God is God and I am not. You could do this for lots of practices, arguably all of them. But the idea is that they help the teaching get into our bodies, get into our, our lives. And at risk of being redundant, I just want to say again, the, Ho- the Holy Spirit is right there in the middle. There is no transformation into Christlikeness apart from the Holy Spirit. The other three things, teaching, community, and practices, are simply things we do to make ourselves available to be transformed by the Spirit. It's like if we wanted to sail a boat, we can't make the wind blow, but we can get the boat into the water, raise the sails, make sure it's not leaking, and wait and have, sp- have space for the wind to do what only it can do that we cannot do. 
And that's it, the theory done over time within the work, joy, and suffering of our lives, get into vocation, we get, in, we get into how to suffer well, all that stuff, and, and all that uh, over decades is, will become like Jesus. And I just want to highlight suffering here real quick. Teaching practices in community are especially t- important in times of suffering. I don't, know, I don't know about you, but sometimes like when things hurt, you know, like all my like rhythms go out the door, and I just want like food and movies. I just want anesthesia, you know, or whatever. Uh, but... The, the idea is that, you know, like, when's the best time to remodel your house? Like, when it's not on fire, right? You know, you, you put some rhythms in place uh, so that when it does, it does when the, the storms do come, you, you have something that can, you can just ride. Just do the next thing, you know? Uh, this past month has been pretty tough for Camille and I. Uh, and so, you know, we've just been, like, clinging to God through teaching, community, and practices. Just, you know, sitting with God, uh, sitting together on the couch, reading psalms and praying, you know, showing up to our community, uh, confessing our struggle to trust God and the anxiety that we feel, letting them lay hands on us and pray for us. And, and Lamont quotes a, a rabbi, uh, and I, I just love this, uh, connects like practices and suffering. He says, only God can put scripture inside but reading sacred text can put it on your heart, and then when your heart breaks, the holy words will fall inside. So as we like form our lives in the way of Jesus and the truth of who God is, uh, when suffering comes, it can, uh, it can truly make us better and not bitter. Or Jesus would say it like this, Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. So the rain came down, the streams rose, the winds blew and beat against that house, and it did not fall. If you want the house of your life to stand against the storms of suffering, it's going to require you to put into practice what Jesus said and do what he did. And this is great news. It's not meant to be oppressive. This is like, oh, you don't have to fear the storms. You yoke yourself to Jesus, nestle your life into him and his way of life and his teaching and truth and the, the grace of the gospel, and then you ride it out. So just two next steps for you as by way of application. You want to jump in. First, uh, let God have the first word of your day. When you wake up, and that might seem simple or obvious, like really we're going back to like youth group quiet time or whatever, maybe, but... It's a lot harder when you think about it. Uh, first thing in the morning, when you wake up, before you check your phone, start doing anything, check email, spend some time in the quiet with God. Read a psalm, be silent still before God, and just like turn your, the, the gaze of your heart towards God's loving gaze towards you in Christ. And that, that's a lot harder than it sounds. You know, you got kids, like you try to get up before your kids, you know, maybe, or like, you know, there's so many different things. You turn Netflix off earlier so you get sleep get to sleep early. There's like a whole like array of habits like it might have to go into just like having 20 minutes in the quiet with God every morning. And second, if you'd like to go a little bit deeper into some of the stuff we've talked about, uh, a, a kind of like intro book uh, would be the, the Ruthless Elimination of Hurry by John Mark Comer. Um, I, if you're over 40, I got to warn you, it's a little like obnoxiously trendy and hipster. Uh, but, it's a, but it's a really super helpful, uh, just easy read, laying the groundwork for kind of like the problem of hurry and just the, the, you know, the normal American lifestyle and some really helpful baseline practices to like slow us down and make space for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to be able to connect with God deeply. But, you know, his, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. You know, just like imagine with me, what if being a faithful Jesus follower meant you got more naps, Jesus naps in the Bible, like it's a spiritual discipline. 
yes and amen. Like more help with your kids, right? Because you're not afraid to ask for help and you can admit when you're weak. And uh, more walks in nature on the Sabbath because you have space to just do fun things. Closer friendships because you, you, you confess sin and step into meaningful community. Less hurry and busyness because you embrace limits of simplicity and, and, and uh, you know, cl- cleaning up the clutter of your calendar. And ultimately, just a deeper experience of the ferocious love that God has for you now, right now, wherever you're at, as his beloved son and daughter, not what you will be. And then for the sake of others, imagine vivid experiences of the Spirit's power flowing through you, in you, to to love others. Like the call to love people still crushes me a little bit, but... It used to always crush me because I'm like, man, I'm just not a loving person. And then when I realized, like, the Spirit is meant to give me power to do that, words to say and ideas and actions that I can do that are not of me but are supernatural to, to pour out my, my life for others, it was, it was so freeing. And we, it's us joining God in the power of the Spirit on his mission to renew all things. This brings us to the table. Uh, the invitation to the easy yoke is founded on what we celebrate here at the table at the Lord's Supper each week. We come to the table not because we've earned it or deserve it, but because the body and blood of Jesus brings us to God. The righteous for the unrighteous brings us to God and, and into life with God under his rule. And so as you come forward today, eat and drink in the grace of the gospel and consider the life that Jesus died for you to experience. The ushers can come forward. Let me pray. Oh God, I praise you for this this easy yoke of Jesus. I praise you for the incredible grace it is that you would would draw near to us, move into our neighborhood, take on flesh and dwell among us. I praise you for the the incredible grace tied up in the the reality that uh, you want to be with us, that you see us as children, even in our messes and our uh, limitations and our immaturity, that you love us, you delight in what you're, you're making us into. And Father, I praise you that you've, you've set us up apart for, for good works, for, for um, joining you in the renewal of all things, and that you've given us the ability to choose, the ability to set up our lives. So Father, would we hear the invitation uh, to draw near to you in the, the nuts and bolts, the nitty-gritty, the habits of our lives, and experience your ferocious love to us in Jesus. Amen.